You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing a DeFi protocol that is aiming to engage all crypto assets including altcoins with smaller market caps into the DeFi economy. We're talking about a new lending protocol called Fringe Finance. The protocol looks to enable crypto projects and institutional investors to earn interest on deposits while allowing holders of smaller market cap altcoins to use them as collateral to discuss the project in detail we are joined from sydney australia by brian passfield who is the cto at french finance brian a very warm welcome to you on our show from nikhil and myself hey it's great to be here thank you for having me welcome brian so to begin could you tell us a little bit about yourself your background what got you into blockchain and crypto and your journey so far yes okay well um as quickly as i can my background is engineering so i love technology i've had a lot to do with software development and uh delivery over the years with the consulting background software engineering uh working for corporates and banks and government um and i I had quite a lot of exposure in the finance space and you know a, a few things back in the day I smelt a fish and because you know there's so many things that are cooked like CPI and the fact that there's inflation and so forth and there are just so many aspects of it and I thought mm, it it would be great if there was a really fair way that this all worked out uh and there wasn't uh, a monopoly on money and so forth anyhow um a number of years down the track uh I began becoming involved in uh commodities trading um gold and silver and uh energy and looking at the macro trends globally and uh beginning to understand a little bit about how things stitch together and develop quite a bit of interest in that worked in the space and then along came bitcoin and a friend of mine said Brian you just need to look into bitcoin and in about 2013 he said just go out and buy several thousand dollars worth of bitcoin because this is the way of the future and we had quite a similar phys- ph- philosophical background and so we understood what theoretically it could pretend for the world and uh I kicked myself because it was about a year before I took any action on his advice but um so i've been involved quite early on uh i've been involved in lobbying for legislation here in australia um so there's some policy and uh legislation that has been formed around some of the work that i've done there um and i've been as, as much as possible active in the community uh working with various projects uh bitcoin point of sale systems merchant systems um trading systems trading bots um voting systems and a whole a, well a quite a variety and a range of applications and solutions in the crypto space and meanwhile my career in the consulting space was progressing and I was working as CTO for various startup organizations even though I had a large shop background uh I was very interested in the smaller and more dynamic spaces and so ultimately that has led to me being the CTO for Fringe Finance and that's been quite a ride and we're just at a point where we're about to release our first product to market and it's uh yeah definitely been a really good intersection of my technology background my uh, awareness of finance involvement in that space as well as my philosophies and views on i think what can be well uh, identifying that there are things that definitely could have been improved in that space 
So really, it's um, it's a really good intersection of a lot of my interests and expertise, I think, in that space, or at least experiences. Okay, so, uh, you know, before we go into the details of uh, French finance, about the company and how it works, I just wanted to set the perspective for our audience. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years, DeFi has been the main growth engine for crypto as a whole. And, uh, you know, there's been many different kinds of financial services built in the DeFi space, uh, everything from lending platforms to decentralized exchanges to services focusing on synthetic derivatives and many other things, right? So, uh, Brian, for our audience, could you give a very brief two to three line description of, you know, where French finance fits within the DeFi industry and the problem that it is going after? Yes, Fringe Finance is, in essence, a lending and borrowing platform. There are a number of lending and borrowing platforms already in the DeFi ecosystem, but Fringe Finance has a very particular focus, and it's looking to specialize in the space to support using a whole range of altcoin collateral as, or altcoins as collateral for borrowers to take out loans. So that is really our focus, which is slightly different to a lot of the other lending platforms that are quite popular in the DeFi ecosystem, where those other lending platforms tend to focus on the larger cap, the larger coins, and the more popular coins in that space. We're unlocking the value that is in these altcoins. So these altcoin holders who are passionate about the projects can retain exposure to the upside of their coins and deploy it as collateral to take out loans and then use that to deploy elsewhere in the DeFi ecosystem. Great. So basically, you know, from what you described, the key differentiator is that it's a lending platform that's geared towards people who are holders of these low-cap altcoins versus the general bigger ones like uh, BTC, Ethereum, and all the other big ones, right? Correct, yes. So uh, just to take a closer look at how French finance, uh, the system works. First, you have the lenders. Uh, lenders are generally large institutions or other entities that are willing to lend out USD holdings uh, in the form of USD-pegged stablecoins. Uh, and then, as usual, you have the borrowers who are generally individuals who have these low-cap altcoins with them that they'd like to put as collateral uh, so as to take a loan from the system. Uh, And then you have liquidators. They are the people who liquidate positions when they fall below the minimum collateralization levels. Uh, And for all of this to work, you also have your own stablecoin called USB stablecoin, which is pegged to the US dollar. Uh, And then you have the FRIN token, FRINT token, which I guess is used for the voting mechanism in the DAO that you have in your ecosystem. So, Brian, looks like uh, there are many different moving parts to the system. Uh, could you explain for our audience how all of this works? Yes. Okay. I'll just I'll initially focus on the lending and the borrowing side of things. Um, so, as you quite rightly mentioned, institutional lenders can deploy their US dollar holdings that earn very little interest in traditional banking system. They can deploy their US dollar holdings by swapping them to stable coins and then lending them out on our platform to earn far more attractive interest rates. And that suits institutions and any other US dollar holders. So we see that as uh, a, a continuing and a growing market, and we want to really support that. On the borrower side, as again, you quite rightly mentioned, Borrowers who are holding the smaller cap altcoins can deploy those onto our platform to take out loans. Now, there are two personas, really. The first persona is the passionate altcoin project holders who wish to deploy their capital because there are very few opportunities elsewhere in the DeFi ecosystem for them to deploy their capital to take out loans. And they're more typically the individual holders. There's also the projects themselves that hold large treasuries in their native token, or at least their project token. Now, the Fringe Finance platform allows those projects 
to deploy their treasury so that they can take out stablecoin loans to reinvest into their project or to uh, spend on operational items to keep their projects running. So this is a real great opportunity for them. And we're partnering with quite a number of projects in that space. And we look to see more over time. So just to clarify, this is like looking at it from the perspective of a new project, which is you know really low in market cap, uh, let's say. Uh, they would be looking at deploying their treasury on, on this platform versus you know spending it on marketing and airdrops and stuff that, that they would generally do, I would say. Yes. Just a couple of things uh, that I was trying to look at over here or uh, kind of think about over here is, and uh, one is basically if you're looking at, say, a new project coming on, right, how do you actually know what price that that particular token should be valued at? Is there there some kind of evaluation that is done on that particular borrower? And in case, uh, if that is, then how does that work? Okay, yeah, I'll give you a, a bit of a view on that. We do undertake due diligence, if you like, on the projects that are looking to list on our platform. And that really has a lot to do with, we like to know who the project is, uh, who the individuals are, if they are doxed, uh, if they've let themselves be known, or if they have not let themselves be known, we like to see if they have other projects under their belt so that they're good actors. And we look at a number of factors. You know, is the project decentralized sufficiently so that it avoids the opportunity for rug pulls by centralized entities within the project? And so they're the qualitative aspects or some of the qualitative aspects that we look at, but there are also quantitative aspects that we consider in listing a coin. And that largely has to do with the market volatility of a historic market volatility for those coins and also the available liquidity for those coins. Because as you mentioned earlier in this discussion, they're one of the key actors for maintaining stability of the platform as the liquidators for any of the borrowers who allow their positions to become lower than the minimum collateralization level. Now, those liquidators for themselves to perform the very crucial function that they perform on any lending platform will need a mechanism to dispose of the assets that they win in a liquidation event. And we can talk a bit more about that later, but um, essentially they win the collateral or a sufficient amount of the collateral to reward them for the effort that, uh, that they're undertaking. And as a consequence of that, uh, any rational liquidator is expected to dispose of that collateral asset on the open market for more popular stable coins or other higher cap coins. And for them to undertake that disposal, they need to ensure or there needs to be sufficient liquidity in the marketplace to allow them to perform that action without affecting the market too much, without the liquidators experiencing too high a slippage. So that is one of the key factors that we consider which is the market liquidity for these tokens on the various exchanges, be it centralized exchanges or decentralized exchanges. And, and that goes into determining the parameters that we define for the lending of or the lending that we offer against any given token. The market volatility affects the loan to value ratios that we're willing to offer. And that historically tells us the kind of fluctuations that could occur during a period of time during which liquidations could be expected to be performed. And therefore, that protects the platform from becoming undercollateralized. And the market liquidity affects another parameter that we define for lending, which is the maximum aggregate available borrowing against any given altcoin. So these are some of the, well, some of them are standard engineering aspects of lending platforms, but we have engineered some special engineering aspects, particularly around the maximum borrowing capacity. 
uh, given the liquidity of some of the altcoins that we're looking to support as not going to be as large as some of the more popular coins out in the DeFi ecosystem. So we need to contain that to ensure that our platform can remain stable. Right. So to push back a little bit on that uh, also. So you had mentioned that you look at the qualitative aspects of a particular project and you look at, uh, you know, the historical uh, market quality and volatility and stuff. But if, on the other hand, if you are a new project, uh, which is typically what a lot of altcoins are, they are they're new into the market, you may not have that history to, to qualify, to, to, to do that kind of evaluation. So are you saying that, Hey, okay, if I am a new market, a uh, new, new coin coming onto the market, uh, this particular platform is not, uh, not a viable option? A coin does need to have, or a token does need to have some history for us to be able to successfully or meaningfully assess it. Theoretically, we could still list a very, very uh, nascent token, but it just means those parameters would be quite constrained. For example, with a very new token, it might be expected that there would be very little trading liquidity of that token. And so that would quite meaningfully restrict the amount of borrowing that we could offer against a token like that. We will continue for any token that we do list, we continually reassess the available liquidity in the marketplace for that token so that we adjust our parameters ongoing. And when it comes to market volatility, you're quite right. Early in a project's or a token's life, it's quite usual for there to be high volatility on that token. And so that will reduce the loan-to-value ratios that we would be able to offer for those tokens. So um, theoretically, it's quite possible, even for a very, very new token, for us to list. But the commercial opportunity in listing that token in such an early stage of its lifetime may not warrant the costs for us to incorporate it and integrate it into our platform. So ideally, there is a little bit of history or sufficient history for us to be able to undertake that. Um, we can look at various partnerships with projects to help offset the costs associated with that. But what we would like to do in most instances is merely list the token if it has uh, sufficient history to us, be, us to be able to list it in a profitable manner. Yeah, so I actually uh, had a chance to uh, read through some of uh, the stuff in, in your white paper. And uh, so I guess, you, you know, you, you use a mix of different criteria to give risk ratings to these various low-cap altcoins. And like you mentioned, uh, the history of price volatility combined with the amount of non-circulating supply that exists in that project and uh, other factors as well, right? And, and this is basically what decides the loan-to-value ratio of that specific altcoin. Uh, could you touch a little bit on like what is the mechanism to revise this uh, on a timely basis or uh, does uh, does the community play a part in this? You know, is there any sort of voting uh, for at least qualitatively looking at the, the risk rating for an altcoin? We've got quite a bit of automation that we've built that assesses the marketplace um, and assesses the the metrics that feed into these parameters. So it's really a matter of rerunning our automation to pop out updated and revised figures. Um, the marketplace or our, our community, they would be very interested in ensuring that the platform remains stable. So what we're initially doing is using our automation to derive a set of parameters and we're applying a conservative factor to them. And as the platform and the token proves itself, we will be relaxing some of those conservative parameters or conservative factors so that we can see how the market behaves and how that token behaves on our platform. As I mentioned, we've got some special engineering that we employ to just uh, to, to best support 
this paradigm of supporting these smaller tokens. So we're quite passionate about that because there is tens of billions of dollars locked up in these small tokens that otherwise could not be deployed into the marketplace. And we think we have uh, the right approach that allows these token holders to now deploy their capital into the marketplace. So, so when you say automation, uh, I'm a little curious as to what kind of automation uh, are you talking about? Is there some kind of data analysis? If so, which is where is the data coming from? Yes. Okay. So uh, two of the key aspects there is we look at order books and there's some aggregated order books that we use uh, that approximate or uh, that represent a segment of the market and we extrapolate that over the entire market and so that we can understand what the slippage is for um, any particular price movement. And we also have automation that looks at price history to determine the volatility of these tokens. And we're just about to release a medium post that describes this in greater detail. And all of this can be found or will be found um, on our current website, which is fringe.fi. F-R-I-N-G-E dot F-I. So that automation really looks at those two key aspects and collects that information in an automated sense uh, from the available data sources. Okay, cool. And and so, uh, again, from the decentralization aspect, so are you looking at multiple data sources or are you looking at just one? Uh, is, is there a way to kind of uh, hedge your risk when it comes to the data source itself? That's a really good point. Um, well, price data or price history, I don't think there's too much risk of there a single data source being an issue there because it's price history and if there's any anomalies there, they tend to wash out. Uh, because we're taking averages and looking at worst-case scenarios. We look at outlying situations there and we top and tail that data to remove anomalies. Um, Mm -hmm. On the order book side of things, um, that data is already aggregated and we use various platforms such as Binance and so forth where a lot of these tokens are listed. Uh, And as and when new sources of information come into play, we can incorporate that into our automation but that's a very good point very interesting thank you yeah i i was just taking a look at your website earlier and i must say that you have a pretty impressive list of partners right now and i i saw this chain link on there and i'm guessing chain link is being used for price feeds and uh you have polygon and Bancor. could you uh, speak a little bit about some of the major partnerships that you have currently yeah briefly um you're quite right. There are partnerships which are uh, have multiple aspects to it. For example, as you mentioned, Chainlink is both a token that we're listing on the platform to provide holders of the link token to take out stablecoin loans, as well as currently we do employ Chainlink data feeds. Um, and, and data feeds is quite important for a lending platform. And with the criteria that Chainlink apply to listing or providing price feeds for uh, a given token, that satisfies the need that we have for a a multi-sourced and, um, if you like, a tempered price feed that attempts to remove the opportunity for price manipulation and price, price manipulation attacks that can occur for various single point data feeds that is quite problematic for lending platforms. So definitely Chainlink is, uh, there's multiple aspects to the partnership we have with them. And we're also assessing other price feeds um, because over time there will be various appropriate technology that we can use to ensure that we get sound price feeds. But with a lot of the other projects there, Almost all of them are definitely listing opportunities where we will be listing their token on our platform, as well as other technologies that we look to incorporate as part of our roadmap. 
our roadmap includes uh, a number of things, and this is probably a good transition to just talk about our roadmap a little bit, because it includes not only the variable interest rate lending facilities that we'll be offering initially with the release of our platform, but will include things such as fixed rate lending, uh, cross-chain integration and insurance, so lenders can insure their positions. And some of our partners there offer capabilities in that space, and we're looking to integrate and leverage their projects capability to support part of our roadmap. Uh, just to uh, move to another kind of a topic uh, that is part of your platform, and uh, that is basically the uh, the stablecoin that you guys are using, right? You, you have a stablecoin called USB. And uh, I was just wondering, uh, so what is the role that USB plays here? Is that is that the primary uh, asset that is used for allocating and uh, lending lending out to people, or is are other stable coins also uh, a part of it? Uh, part of you you can list other stable coins also and use those. Our product suite, our platform in- includes two major components. The first component is the primary lending platform, which will lend out popular stable coins such as USDC, for example. A next release currently under development will be our stablecoin platform, and that will incorporate our stablecoin. Um, so one can think there of a model that is similar to the DAI, the MakerDAO stablecoin platform. Right. And the purpose of that is to, ultimately, the purpose of this project is to fulfill the agreement that we have with the initial governance token holders who purchased our governance token during the initial coin offering. And that contract, if you like, is to develop a system, build a system that is useful and desired in the DeFi ecosystem for the benefit of or for the benefit and the return for our governance token holders. And our governance token is the FRIN token, F-R-I-N. Yes. As the FRIN token. And they will receive a proportion of the fees collected by the platform. So with the stablecoin platform that we are currently under development with and releasing after our initial primary lending platform, we anticipate with the investors that we have with the stablecoin platform that we're building, the ability to create good liquidity in the marketplace for this and therefore create appropriate demand for this stablecoin. And that will increase the adoption and the scalability opportunities for the fringe finance platform. So ultimately, it means more utility for the DeFi ecosystem and ultimately greater return for the fringe governance token holders. Right. So uh, the USB token is going to be there in the same list of the same pool and, and be kind of used mainly as a, as a way to reward your friend stakers and uh, the initial participants in the project. Just to piggyback on that really quick, Brian, could you also explain the role of the friend stakers in the ecosystem? Yes, the friend stakers are governance token holders. So currently the project is run by the project team but we are moving to a DAO model whereby the fringe governance token holders will vote on DAO proposals for further evolution and refinement of the platform. So they will define the direction of the platform so that it ultimately achieves the adoption targets and scalability that is ideal for the platform and the governance token holders will have an awareness, we anticipate and imagine, they'll have an awareness of the direction and be able to make proposals 
for the greater benefit of the platform. So that's really their task. They're owners of the platform, or at least they have the ability through the governance token holdings of theirs to make decisions for the direction of the platform. Right. So so these are not like, uh, so what what are these decisions like? Uh, Obviously, they're not something like uh, determining the risk level or determining the uh, price of uh, tokens or anything like that. It's That's mostly automated. Uh, what typically uh, would would they be governing? Would it be kind of more like software updates? Uh, are we talking about that? Well, it will be a whole range of things. But just going back to the automation that you refer to there for determining the parameters on the system, um, governance token holders do have the ability to refine or propose refinements to the models and the automation that we use currently to determine the parameters of the platform. So in a real sense, even though there is automation there, they can propose uh, modifications to those. And those modifications can be assessed against the prior performance of the automation that's currently in place. So where there's opportunities to improve that or when market dynamics change in such a manner that warrant a review of that automation and the models that are employed there, then the DAO and the governance token holders have full say in the way that that will evolve. So that's just on the automation for determining those parameters, but also they will have the decision-making capability on the precedence of roadmap items and the adjustments to the platform over time because there's always opportunity to add functional capability to the platform and there is a a cost-benefit that is always valid in weighing up and prioritizing any new enhancement to the platform and the fringe governance token holders will be instrumental or be the the decision makers in that process. Um, also, the marketplace we anticipate will change in ways that are just impossible at this point to really foretell. And so the governance token holders having skin in the game and visibility of the DeFi marketplace will be able to determine what the needs are in the marketplace and propose new functional capabilities and or roadmap items to ensure that the platform forever remains relevant. Cool. So so that makes the the friend stakers role clear. There's another actually group of people uh, in the system, which are the liquidators, right? Um, So what is uh, the incentive uh, for a person to become a liquidator, how how does that kind of work? What, what how does what what does one need to be one need to do to become a liquidator? The incentive for a liquidator is they receive a reward for performing a liquidation. With most, if not all, lending platforms in the DeFi space, there is an over collateralization requirement which means when a borrower takes out a loan, they are staking a greater value in collateral so that as the market price of collateral changes over time, there's always sufficient collateral backing up the loan that they take out. Now we have thresholds which trigger a liquidation, which is still above the point of the platform being solvent or that position being solvent. And at that point, what occurs is the liquidator pays back the loan so that the lending pool is made whole and the collateral that is being staked by the borrower is returned to the borrower except for the amount that the liquidator pays back to pay back the loan plus a liquidator reward which will be in the range of, say, 6.5%. It depends on the token um, and 
uh, depends on the slippage ultimately of the token on the marketplace to ensure that the liquidator receives sufficient reward uh, to warrant them deploying their capital for the purposes of, of liquidations rather than any other use case that they could deploy their capital for. So that liquidator reward is really the prime driver in motivating liquidators. So the platform employs incentive-compatible mechanics in the game theory to ensure that the various actors are sufficiently incentivized to perform their role in maintaining the stability and or using the platform. Would there be an advantage, you know, if, if instead of having this role being played by the liquidators, the same thing is handled by smart contracts, you know, where if it falls below a certain threshold, uh, the position gets liquidated, is, or is that something that wouldn't fit in this uh, approach? There's various ways that that could be achieved. The way we like to look at this, again, just going back to the game theory around this, is to create incentives for actors so that they perform in a way that balances the system. There's other factors that come into play, which is there is a penalty to the borrower when a liquidation is performed. And it is a much better approach for that to be performed by an interested but otherwise impartial actor being the liquidator and incentivizing them rather than the platform themselves performing a liquidation and penalizing the borrower. Um, it, it just keeps the platform itself as being quite objective rather than it going about and penalizing borrowers. They're performed or these functions and if you like the cost is performed by interested actors. Makes sense. Yeah. But having said that, over time, if there are appropriate automated models to consider, well, then the fringe token governance token holders can assess this and over time may begin to employ that. Right. Almost like an automated uh, liquidator function. So one other question. Uh, so uh, in the whole thing. Uh, so you mentioned penalties and you know, obviously there is the uh, rewards that you're giving to the liquidator. Is there any other type of fees that the uh, borrower or the lender have to consider when they actually uh, interact with the uh, platform? Yes. So most interactions with the platform incur a very small fee of 0.25%. So that goes into our treasury and it funds the continual development of the project as well as rewarding the fringe governance token holders or stakers of the fringe token hold tokens. Um, uh, I, I think it's probably worthwhile me also mentioning that though there are quite potentially opportunities for automating some of those functions, such as the liquidation, as was mentioned a couple of moments ago, Liquidators specialize in performing liquidations and they have their own disposal paths, their disposal strategies that allow them to specialize uh, and compete with one another. So that competition ensures that uh, if we automated things or if the platform automated things, there would be whatever disposal strategies or efficiency in what could be automated there, but the, leaving it to the marketplace ensures that the appropriate competition plays out and liquidators devise the best and most effective way to perform liquidations. Okay. Uh, speaking of fees, again, uh, obviously you mentioned your admin fee and uh, there's obviously the, uh, the money that goes to the stakers and uh, uh, the liquidators, etc. Uh, this this is also uh, or on top of the fees that are just the gas fees of doing these transactions, correct? Correct. So uh, I was just w wondering, uh, uh, given that we've we've always we currently kind of always been uh, getting a lot of uh, 
in the news it's always uh, the gas fees are so high and there's always uh, this particular story about how how difficult it is to do anything on the ethereum blockchain um, i was just wondering what your perspective on that is do you have any plans to address that particular thing and how that might affect the functioning of the platform as a whole yeah that's it's a it's a wide ranging set of considerations there i mean gas <laughs> it's quite interesting um one could be uh subjective in their view of the cost of gas fees but looking at objectively they are what they are because there is the demand for it and the reason there is the demand for it is because it has value to the participants who interact with the in this case the ethereum blockchain to perform whatever actions they do on that blockchain including participate in the defi ecosystem um there are other layer 1 chains um and there are also layer 2 chains that look to alleviate some of those but they come with trade-offs ethereum platform is proven that it's you know the most secure and therefore um the utility that provides an assurance that it provides participants on that platform is obviously of value to them hence the price associated with performing actions on the ethereum blockchain with other layer 1 platforms well that race is still underway and it's really yet to see if in the long term the security and the utility of those platforms will play out for certain use cases it has a lot of utility um but because of some of the more centralized aspects of those layer 1 platforms it represents vulnerabilities um and threat attack vectors that certain participants particularly the ones who like to remain on the ethereum blockchain don't wish to entertain so there is a place for all of these platforms and as layer 2 platforms or uh, capabilities for the ethereum blockchain come further or uh, mature further there will be opportunities for fringe finance to employ those and again that race is being played out also um and the governance token holders our dao will make the appropriate decisions at the appropriate points in time to adopt and employ those layer 2 uh capabilities or bridge to other layer 1 platforms or even to uh spin up a separate instance of the fringe finance platform on other layer 1 blockchains so these are all open for consideration and they are some of those considerations are within our roadmap but jostling around with best value for market adoption uh, for achieving market adoption for the fringe finance platform so yes um my view is that there is great value in what is considered the high cost of gas fees on ethereum because the market finds great utility in that right so uh, what do you think about the efforts to move away from uh, or to put in place mechanisms like you know the ethereum 2.0 move and all of those that hopefully would reduce the technical limitations of uh the transaction speed and things like that do you think that uh has a material effect or is that just something that happens is not not going to affect the cost of gas fees hmm um uh that's such a wide range ranging there are such a wide ranging set of considerations there yeah in short in short i would say this um there certainly mechanisms that will increase in time will increase throughput on the ethereum blockchain um however that demand will be met by people who or actors who wish to employ that additional throughput so mm-hmm. it will be a continual game and 
um, gas fees will remain high. Um, but there are also other aspects of Ethereum 2.0, which is a movement away from more decentralized mechanisms to a more centralized proof of stake mechanism. And there will be, and that, that opens vulnerabilities for the platform, which I think will be very interesting to see how it plays out in the marketplace. I don't want to suggest that there will be a contingent of Ethereum actors who wish to retain the proof of state, uh, the proof of work uh, consensus mechanism or the proof of work model. Um, but that may very well be the case that there could be a retention into the future of a proof of work platform also. Yeah, I, I believe it is planned as a hard fork, correct? Uh, so there should be the proof of work chain, but I think the main thing over there is that they're expecting or they're going to try and put uh, some mechanisms in place to make it very, very hard to use that particular fork. And uh, yeah, you said there may be some contention about putting that mechanism in place and just accepting that it's just another fork and you have two types of Ethereum. That that is in fact uh, an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, let's see how it plays out. So, uh, Brian, uh, we've uh, had a pretty wide-ranging conversation. Kind of covered quite a bit of. I, I would like to think we covered quite a bit of the fringe finance platform, uh, and from a more functional and technical uh, side, can you think of? Uh, something a uh, question that we have not asked that you would have liked to uh, expound upon i think uh it, it's interesting to consider where the whole landscape moves to in time i think in the first instance this notion of let's let's just call it bitcoin or the value transfer capability that was the key game changer so there is a money that is not um, a monopoly money or it's not monopolized and it's got all the attributes and qualities that it has, which allows transfer of value. And that also is employed by Ethereum and really any token there uh, sitting on the Ethereum blockchain. And now in the DeFi ecosystem, we've got a layer of services on top of that ability to transfer value. And, you know, as we can see, and as we are players in that space, there is more and more facility, as you mentioned at the early part of this conversation, with lending platforms and derivatives and options and um, trading platforms and uh, insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and all of those services will continue to evolve. And where things go from here, I see uh, a, a key missing piece is now that we've got the value transfer capability in place, and then what was built on top of that being a set of services and applications and platforms that employ that ability to transfer value, we now have entities emerging in that space, in the decentralized space which are entities in their own right, which don't exist in any state-based jurisdiction. And they, at the moment, don't have a well-developed ability to resolve disputes between themselves. As more and more of these DAOs come into existence and more and more of the community begins to work for DAOs, there will be the need for contracts to be made between these DAO entities. And because they are, by and large, not recognized in any state-based jurisdiction or state-based legal systems, at the moment there is no real effective way to arbitrate disputes between them, or at least to have veracity to the verdicts made by any dispute resolution process. And the way I see this panning out is a number of, number of facilities coming into play 
to enable this. And this is part of a project that we are working on. And this is the ability for reputation to be the basis of ensuring that verdicts made when resolving disputes between various parties to a contract, that their reputation is at stake. Because in state-based legal systems, the veracity of a verdict ultimately boils down to the ability of the state to employ force to uphold that verdict. Now, that ability to uphold force does not exist in the decentralized, distributed, ethereal world um, of DAOs that don't exist in any state-based legal uh, framework. So what will be at stake is their reputation. And this reputation will give other actors and uh, people wishing to interact with them and contract with them good visibility as to whether they're good actors. And if they are not good actors, for example, if their reputation tells the marketplace that they either uh, don't uphold the terms and conditions of contracts or even more to the point, don't uphold the verdicts of any disputes that are um, raised or, or that they're a party to, then this will severely inhibit their ability to continue to interact because people will be reticent to enter into uh, contracts of any greater and greater value. And as this ecosystem extends and expands and more and more of the, if you like, energy of the world moves to operating in this decentralized space, it will be quite crucial for the greater value of the contracts that will be struck between the various parties in the system. And those parties can be both DAOs and any other individuals even through their pseudonymous identities. Um, it will be necessary to have a dispute resolution process that has veracity and that veracity will primarily be dependent on reputation. So I see that being uh, something that will come to the fore and, uh, and, and certainly watch this space for things that we've got in the concept stage at this point. Awesome. Uh, thank you for that sneak peek. Uh, yes. Just my, my thought on that was that, you know, like you pointed out, uh, uh, reputation is, uh, I mean, uh, almost as, uh, as strong as reputation that uh, it is, it is the identity uh, tied to it that would matter, right? Because if you, uh, it, it is possible for people to assume different personas, different uh, identities, and uh, then cultivate them uh, separately. Uh, so uh, unless you have a very strong way of tying that reputation to a uh, what people trust is a as a as a strong identity, that that would be a key piece of that uh, effort uh, of any effort that kind of looks at using reputation as a social signal or even a dispute resolution signal. Yes, um, it's interesting that term that you use there. What was it? Strong identity mm -hmm. will and should always be pseudonymous. Um, reputation is very domain specific. For example, if I have a good reputation in the beekeeping community as someone who <laughs> um, can help establish healthy beehives, that doesn't that doesn't account for much if I'm seeking finance. Um, so it's quite domain specific, any reputation. So um, it, it won't matter if there are different pseudonymous identities. Well, I mean, I, I'd like to kind of uh, push back on that, right? So in, in the sense that if I had a reputation in a beekeeping community and I applied for finance 
up on on a project that involved beekeeping, then uh, obviously that reputation would be a strong signal to the financiers that hey, I know what I'm doing, so you should lend me some some money. Okay, definitely, I give you that point. Yes, um, I think if there is the ability to merge, um, voluntarily merge identities to help uh, and reputations associated with them to help. Uh, undertake further interactions with actors that definitely has its place. Yes, right, and and so that's that's basically another thing also, right? So if you take uh, activity like beekeeping, like you pointed out, uh, it's uh, it's an activity that is partly digital but partly real, right? It's uh, it's the reputation comes from you know real examples of uh, people. Uh, doing expert things with bees and, uh, you know, building hives and stuff like that. So that's h- how you tie that together is basically, I think, a strong uh, a, a thing which kind of, in my mind so far, uh, there's not that much clarity on. Because if I say, okay, I'm tying that to a uh, arbitrary username, like say beekeeper123, there's nothing that stops me from going and then going back to the community as beekeeper, I don't know, 256 and uh, creating another identity and then at some point uh, comp- um, using the first one as kind of like a way to uh, conduct, uh, you know, shenanigans. Mm. Yes, but um, if there's a reputation, I mean, these are interesting considerations. If there's a reputation that Beekeeper one two three is established. That is of value, and um, uh, and tarnishing that reputation has a cost because it means yes. that that participant can interact. Yes, yeah, so they'll they'll be looking to maintain that reputation. Absolutely, and so obviously, then that goes down to the price thing of what is the cost of doing that, right? So if if I basically say okay. I want to use that particular identity and cultivate that identity and then use it to do some shenanigans worth a certain amount uh, that's worth that cost, right? And then that becomes kind of like a discussion, a philosophical discussion about what is the value of something, of different things to different people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, that's something that we can go down. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a winding path. Uh, that one yeah, well, I think that is absolutely key to this because as I mentioned, the contracts between various actors will tend to have greater and greater value attached to them over time as they build their reputations because people through that reputation will can trust that for example if someone is nominated or identified some pseudonymous identity is well identified as being a successful ceo of um uh, an insurance platform in the DeFi space then uh, DAOs will be willing to hire that person in and, and invest and entrust them with certain value. And that entity will be willing to fulfill their end of the bargain because if they don't perform as a an effective CEO, their reputation will be tarnished. So their value, the ability to extract value from that reputation will be diminished in the future. So you're quite right. And these are real and um, uh, key aspects to all of the identities and the reputation, or more to the point, the reputations and the values that will accrue to that reputation over time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this, this, in fact, identity and uh, is, is a very fascinating topic when it comes to, you know, decentralization and, and DAOs and, and the whole digital thing. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm, I'm looking forward to you uh, seeing what you guys uh, are going to do next over there because I think that is definitely one of those areas where the investment needs to be done. Yes. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's a great game. We're enjoying this. We've got a great team. Uh, we're distributed all over the world and it's like we're brothers and sisters, even though in the most part we have not met each other. But we have, um, at the end of meetings, uh, on our video calls, we'll, um, grab a coffee and we'll talk about the family and our kids and our holidays and that kind of thing. So it's like we've known each other for years now. Yeah, 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 I hear you. That's great. 
Brian, do you want to uh, tell our audience a little bit about, you know, where to find more information about French finance and how to get involved in your community? Yes. Okay. So the single point to start with would be our website, fringe.fi. So that's F-R-I-N-G-E dot F-I. And I figure you may include this in the show notes, but there you will find links to our white paper, links to uh, our medium articles, and more and more of those come out over time. You'll find links to our social media, including Twitter and our Telegram community. Our Telegram community is quite active um, and they keep us to task. And the appropriate announcements and visibility of what we're saying is available on Twitter. So they're good places to start. And anyone who holds any altcoins, definitely have a look at fringe finance because there is an opportunity for you to not only sit and hold and passionately believe in the upside of your tokens, but you can now go out and deploy your, your assets to take out loans to deploy elsewhere in the DeFi ecosystem. And if as a lender, you're interested in seeking better returns than what your US dollar holdings are achieving in a normal bank. Yep, it's definitely a platform that is worthwhile looking into. Well, uh, this has been a really wonderful conversation, Brian. I want to thank you for your time. And uh, I must say that you have quite bravely decided to go after a market, you know, that others have shied away from. Uh, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how your company progresses over the coming years. And uh, we would love to have you back a year or so from now uh, and to check on how you're progressing. So once again, thanks for your time and I wish you all the best. My pleasure. Great to chat with you, gentlemen. And yeah, I look forward to in the future um, meeting you again and having another chat. Cheers, Brad. Okay, cheers. Bye. Once again, that was Brian Passfield from Fringe Finance. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.